Hi, it's Martha Stewart. You know, I spend a lot of time thinking about dirt. At 3 a.m.? At all hours of the day, really. What people don't know is that not all dirt is the same. You need dirt with the right kind of nutrients. New miracle Grow organic raised bed and garden soil is so dense, so full of nutrient-rich, high-quality ingredients. miracle Grow is simply the best. Welcome back to Pod Save the World. This is Tommy Vitor. Thank you all for tuning in. As always, it is a packed show today. And I know I say that often, but this one really is. So Ben Rhodes and I did the normal news, but we were lucky enough to be joined by Tony Blinken. He was a deputy secretary of state, deputy national security advisor in the Obama administration. He's just a brilliant guy. We talked through the ongoing disaster that is Brexit. We talked about the very scary rocket firing between Hamas and Israel and Gaza. And we also talked about Bibi Netanyahu's trip to D.C. and President Trump deciding to officially recognize Israeli sovereignty over the Golan Heights and what that all means. Then we talked about the fact that ISIS has apparently lost its final bit of territory in Syria. That is obviously good news. We talked about the long-term implications. And then Secretary Pompeo and his continued saber-rattling in Venezuela. And finally, there were some reports that suggested the reporting around the Russia-Muller report was somehow worse than the reporting about WMD leading into Iraq. So we try to unpack that one and see uh, what the hell that means. Then I am lucky enough to be joined by Joe Cerencioni, who is the president of the Plowshares Fund, and Yasmin Silva, who is a partnership manager at Beyond the Bomb. They both are in part of the organizations that want to stop the spread of nuclear weapons. They want to prevent a nuclear war from happening. So we talked about why they hate nukes. Incredibly important conversation. Does not get enough coverage in the media because I think it's such a horrible scenario that people want to imagine it's not possible. But it is. But there are things we could do to stop it. And they are two great activists who can help us understand how you personally can get involved. And finally, Worldos want to know, we talked about what technology platforms and individuals and governments can do to stop radical content from spreading online. So without further ado, here's the conversation with Ben and Tony Blinken. Ben Rhodes, Tony Blinken. I was hoping we could start with Brexit because watching British politics right now is the only thing that makes me feel good about our own. <laughs> so last week, the EU imposed a new deadline of April 12th for the UK to either approve Theresa May's Brexit deal or ask for a long-term extension or exit the EU without ironing out all the thousands of details that govern commerce or travel between nations. Then on Monday, the British Parliament took control of the government's efforts to manage the Brexit process. What could go wrong? Well, so I was going to ask you, yeah. what the hell does that mean? And, and do, <laughs> would you guys like our Congress to have the capacity to do yes. this? Well, that's a that's a close call. Yeah, there. Yeah. I mean, I look. I, we we've talked about this. Um, the car crash has been playing out in extreme slow motion now for a few months, Tommy, and. There's an original sin here that can't be avoided, which is the referendum to Brexit in the first place. And the British Parliament and people did not like Theresa May's deal because mm-hmm. it creates all kinds of problems for them. And they don't like a no-deal Brexit because that's even worse and potentially catastrophic for the British economy and future relationship between Britain and Europe. 
but they're kind of casting about when basically any real Brexit is going to have a number of shitty consequences, mm-hmm. right? And so you're either going to leave or you're not. If you're going to leave, a lot of these bad things are going to happen. You're going to have to pay a bunch of money to the EU. You're going to lose a bunch of market access. Your citizens are going to lose the freedom of movement they have and on down the list. And you know the parliament can kind of pretend that they're somehow going to generate some deal that miraculously avoids the bad consequences of Brexit and is agreed to by the EU, but that's not going to happen either. So either they're just going to have to swallow hard and Brexit and accept the pain that will go along with that, or they're going to have to figure out a way to stay in or mm-hmm. have a, a what's called the soft Brexit where they're still in the customs union and uh, essentially you're not achieving what you know the Brexit people wanted. And that's basically it. And like everybody's watching this and they're almost pretending as mm-hmm. if there's some magic solution that they can find when it doesn't exist. Yeah. And especially because the EU has to agree to this, right? right? If you if there's a deal, it has to be a deal made with the EU. And the EU has no incentive to give Britain a good deal. Because why would they want to send the message to any other country that, well, you can have your cake and eat it too. You can mm-hmm. leave the EU and still have the market access. Well, they, they're yeah. not going to do that. They're not going to give them a better deal than what Theresa May got. So... All they're doing is prolonging the inevitable here. And the inevitable is they either have to have a pretty tough Brexit or they have to figure out what to stay in. So, so, Tony, over the weekend, there are all these rumors of an insurrection in Theresa mm-hmm. May's party that in her cabinet that she might actually get ousted as prime minister. Do you think that would change anything or would this just be punting for more extensions and asking for more time for the EU, you know, if there's mm-hmm. a major shift? Well, you know, first time, I think Ben's exactly right. This is not just the dog that caught the car. This is the dog that caught the car, and then the car goes into reverse and runs over the dog. (laughs) And it's a total mess. And the real problem is there doesn't seem to be a majority for any scheme, uh, whether it is the May plan, whether it's a a softer Brexit, whether it's a hard Brexit, whether it's a second referendum, whether it's annul the whole thing entirely. That's what Parliament's trying to test Mm -hmm. uh, right now by trying to seize control of this and get a number of votes on these different schemes to see if anything has a majority. Up until now, uh, nothing has. But for Theresa May, yeah, rumors of her demise have been frequent. They've maybe we're reaching the point where they're actually accurate. But here's the thing. No one wants to be left holding the bag. Yeah. The game for those who are who've been challenging her, who, who would want to challenge her, who would want to become prime minister is that let her hold the bag on Brexit. Let that get done and then push her out and take over. No one wants to be there when it actually happens. But we may be at a point where uh, her, you know, sell-by date is real close. If you were still in the State Department, do you think that you would have been dispatched by Secretary Kerry to go over there to help manage this? Or is this a relationship with that so matured that you have to just watch and see what they do? Look, I don't know what Ben thinks on this, but I, it's, it's awful tough to walk that line between, you know, interfering in someone else's politics, but also standing up for your own interests. And our interests yeah. clearly would have been in keeping, uh, you know, Britain in. Whether we could actually put our nose in this in a way that, uh, A, would have an effect, wouldn't be counterproductive, mm-hmm. uh, is a pretty tough question. But, Ben, I don't know what you think. Well, yeah. I mean, we went over there, um, <laughs> you know, famously. Uh, Obama went over there at, at the request of Cameron. And what was interesting about this is that Cameron was self-aware enough to know that he wasn't a very good advocate for staying yeah. in the EU because her, his own party was for leaving. And then Jeremy Corbyn, as we've talked about, kind of has a secret... Brexit, you know, impulse himself, 
you know, he's an unreconstructed socialist who's skeptical of the EU. So there was no spokesperson really for staying with a lot of stature. And Obama polled at like 80 percent in the UK. And they said, please come here and make the argument. Now, we went, as Tony said, we went and made the argument based on like our own interests. Mm. You know, we, we want you to stay. Yes, we think that's best for you. And we, it's also clearly best for us. Clearly, that wasn't enough to move the needle for this. But part of the problem that they have is that there's no one for Brexit or for the EU of a certain political stature in the country to, to lead them anywhere. It's very interesting to watch a country that essentially is lacking in any political leadership. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, part of what's interesting in watching this, and, you know, Tony, I don't know what you think, and, you know, Tony actually, you were at NSC Europe at one point, right? Mm, so you've been watching this ago. for a long time. Um, not that long, yeah. you, you know. Um, but um, the national identity of the UK is kind of playing out in before our eyes. Like, what is this country, you know? It was the British Empire for a very long time, and then it was kind of the Cold War beachhead for you know, liberal democracy and open markets um, during you know the, the Cold War years. And then it was this unique bridge between the Americans and the Europeans and the Commonwealth. Don't forget Cool Britannia. Well, I was going to say, you mix in the Beatles <laughs> and, uh, and the British invasion and all that. But really what they're deciding is, is, who are we? Are we a European country or not? You know, are we, are we embracing the legacy of the empire? Or are we moving past that? Are we an isolated island onto ourselves? Or are we connected to the rest of the world? And they're doing that without any political leadership. So it's a strange mm-hmm. thing to watch. A country, you know, an ancient country, trying to define what it is in the 21st century but without any political leaders to point the direction. And mm-hmm. and that's what's been, I think, so disheartening to watch. And, you know, Boris Johnson, the, the leading Brexit voice, you know, he's he's the guy who wants to make Britain great again. You know, the empire was great, and if only we could go back. Well, guess what? They're, they're not going back to the empire, you know. Then you have kind of the, the modern multicultural Britain embodied by, like, Sadiq Khan, the, the mayor of London, but you know that is something that is not embraced clearly by people in rural England. Uh, they just seem to not know who they are. And, and to be fair to them, I mean, we're sitting here in the United States. Uh, we're having some of the same national identity problems. But this is a pretty profound moment. Yeah, um, and the generational aspect of this yeah. is really striking, too. I mean, you have so many uh, young Brits who feel like they have been uh, had the rug pulled out from under them in being pulled out uh, of the European Union and their own futures, their ability to travel, their ability to study, their ability to work on the continent uh, has been made much, much more difficult. And they feel like uh, their elders have, um, you know, done something to them that uh, they will regret. Yeah. There's, there's so many components of this that are so unbelievably fraught. So, for example, under Brexit, Northern Ireland leaves the EU with the UK, but Ireland stays in the EU, which ignores the fact that they have a totally open border. And the Good Friday Agreement lets Northern Ireland residents basically choose their citizenship. Now, it was not until I recently read this book called Say Nothing by Patrick Radden Keefe, I want to have on this show to talk about the Troubles, which is the period in, in Northern Ireland where the IRA was blowing civilians up in an astounding clip. Uh, how unbelievably fraught that period was, how conditional the peace ultimately was, uh, how the factions all still exist. I mean, just wrenching them out of that agreement is an unbelievable thing to do. And Tony, you worked on this. Do you think the Good Friday Agreement is possible without the EU? It's 
certainly a, a heck of a lot tougher. And I mean, you know, you both referenced something important because the United States actually played a critical role in getting peace in Northern Ireland. And Bill Clinton, uh, folks who worked with him and for him, were actually instrumental. And this was a perfect case of where a sort of outside honest broker made all the difference in getting these parties. Tommy, as you said, the violence was, you know, extraordinary. And the animosities that had been built up over the generations were so hard to peel away. Mm-hmm. And compromise was seen as a, as a weakness, as a failure. Clinton, through his own diplomacy, George Mitchell, who played an instrumental role in this, they were the ones who really helped bring people together. I think it's a lot harder uh, without the EU. And of course, no one wants to go back to a hard border no. between Northern Ireland and Ireland. But for the Brexiters, this is a real problem because they think this is the backdoor way of keeping Britain in, um, uh, in the EU. Uh, so this is why this has been so, one of the main reasons it's been so difficult yeah. to get to some kind of agreement. Let's go to a much less troubled part of the world, Gaza. It has been a very scary few days in Israel. Uh, Hamas has been firing rockets from the Gaza Strip. They've wounded several people, I believe seven in the last count I read. Israel hit back. Uh, they hit targets across Gaza that they said were responsible for the indiscriminate rocket fire that's just you know hitting civilian homes. The early news reports seem to indicate that both sides are trying to ratchet things down. And Hamas even said that the Egyptians have brokered a ceasefire. But, you know, two questions, I guess. One, uh, Israel and Hamas, there hasn't been a full-fledged war since, I believe, 2014. How worried are you about the latest conflict? And, and given the uh, Israeli elections are on April 9th, and Netanyahu was actually in the U.S. when the rocket fire began, do you think the timing was coincidental, or is Hamas sending a message here? Well, look, from my perspective, the only thing uh, worse, as people have said, than an an intended war is an unintended one. And I think neither Hamas nor Israel uh, want an all-out conflict. It would be bad uh, for both sides, not to mention uh, the many innocents who would get killed, injured, or made homeless in the process. But it's very, very easy for these things to spiral uh, out of control. And especially when politics is in the mix on the eve of an election, every single decision is incredibly uh, fraught. So I think there's a real interest on both sides in tamping this down, but it's something you have to watch really really closely because we're in such a, a fraught political uh, period. Yeah. And w- one of the things that you know hasn't gotten a lot of attention, Tommy, is that, that you know, there have been reports recently of some Palestinian uprising against Hamas in Gaza, hmm. some, some frustration with Hamas's rule. And, and you know, so part of this, and, and we'd have to obviously look more carefully and pull the threads on these things, but you know, sometimes a, a group like Hamas, it doesn't really have much to offer <laughs> its people other than, you know, its resistance to Israel. When they're feeling some pressure internally, you know, you lash out at the external mm-hmm. enemy in Israel, right? Mm-hmm. And so this kind of, I think, speaks further to the dysfunction in, in Gaza. Obviously, Hamas is responsible for this indiscriminate rocket fire which is totally unacceptable. At the same time, the question is, how, how do you try to dislodge Hamas, right? Israel's fought multiple wars in Gaza since Hamas took control uh, in 2005. And the reality is this strategy of blockading Gaza, making the people there suffer, mm-hmm. I, you know, I think the, the goal was to send a message to the people of Gaza that, that it'll be worse for you because Hamas is in charge. But that's only served to kind of entrench Hamas there. I do think it's worth rethinking whether the all-out blockade that is causing humanitarian crisis is an effective political strategy in weakening Hamas Mm -hmm. because they seem to be perfectly capable of entrenching themselves despite this blockade. 
the people suffer, Hamas is still there. You know, I think it's worth exploring whether trying to increase connectivity between the people of Gaza and the outside world, increase the humanitarian, improve the humanitarian situation might be, you know, both better for the people of Gaza and a different way at trying to get at uh, the need to promote the Palestinians right. to be able to choose their leaders. Hamas's leadership is, is yeah. horrific, and what uh, they're doing to their own people is horrific. At the same time, the living conditions in Gaza, uh, particularly because it's been blockaded, are really unsustainable. One of the most shocking things is that over uh, the last few years, since 2014, uh, the suicide rate in Gaza among young men has gone through the roof. And, of course, it's not a far step from someone committing suicide to someone committing suicide with a suicide belt on. And so something's got to give. And one of the things that is clear is we've seen these indiscriminate rocket attacks. They're designed from Hamas, designed to kill uh, Israeli civilians. One of the things I'm proudest of during um, our administration uh, was the work we did to make sure that Israel had this Iron Dome missile defense system, which was extraordinarily effective. And there was a point during the 2014 crisis when uh, very late at night, um, and this was when uh, Ben and I were working together um, on the National Security Council, the uh, Israelis came to us, the ambassador came and said, we're running out of these interceptors, we need more. We spoke to President Obama the next day on a Friday in the Oval Office. He said three words, get it done. And by Tuesday, uh, we had more Iron Dome uh, money for Iron Dome interceptors for Israel. But here's the other side of the equation. We were talking in the, in the context of Brexit, of the lack of leadership in the UK. Israel's about to engage in, in, in an election. We'll see what the result is. But there is tactical leadership, which arguably Prime Minister Netanyahu is very, very good at. But strategic leadership is an entirely different question. And it's very hard to see where this story ends if uh, Israel continues uh, on the current course. The absence of trying in a meaningful way to find a two-state solution outcome, I think, creates a huge dilemma yeah. uh, for Israel. Because the bottom line is, if the current trajectory continues in the absence of such a solution, uh, Israel cannot remain Jewish and democratic. Uh, it either has to uh, subjugate um, a population that will be majority Palestinian and Arab uh, if it wants to re- retain its Jewish character, and hence it won't be democratic, or if it is democratic, it will lose its Jewish character. So a choice has to be made. And playing for time is one thing, but avoiding these hard choices Uh, is another. And of course, Israelis are right. They haven't exactly had a great partner Mm -hmm. in the Palestinians. But the need for vision for how to sustain Israel as a Jewish, democratic, and secure state is what's really lacking, at least in this election. And and I think with Bibi, you know, he's good at playing for time through the next election. You know, there's Mm -hmm. always some gambit at the the last minute. You know, last time it was demonizing Israeli Arabs, and the Arabs are voting in droves, Bibi said. You know, this time it'll be this mix of, you know, bashing, you know, Ilhan Omar at APAC and, and you know, flexing the Golan Heights uh, well, decision. I wanted to ask you yeah. guys about that because, you know, Bibi was in Netanyahu for the APAC meetings, but he also got a pretty big political win from President Trump, who officially recognized uh, Israeli sovereignty over the Golan Heights while sitting next to him in the Oval Office. Pompeo, I believe, had already made a trip to Israel to have a ceremony there, so it got maximum press coverage. But um, So the Golan Heights were, were seized from Syria in 1967 by the Israeli military. In 1981, the Israelis passed a law that essentially annexed the place. They took legal and administrative control over the territory. should note that the UN 
does not think that that is a valid law, the 1981 law they declared it null and void. But I mean, I guess my questions for someone who's like, what the hell is a Golan Height? Why is it such a strategically important piece of turf for the Israelis? Why do people find the precedent of allowing annexation worrisome in your mind? And and what did you make of this election day miracle <laughs> for yeah, Prime Minister yeah. Netanyahu? Yeah, I mean, the, you know, uh, the first thing is, consistent with what I was saying about Bibi always trying to get to the next election, that seems to be the only timeline he worries about and thinks about. And, and meanwhile, all the underlying challenges get more intractable. And unless he really is just playing for time for settlements to displace Palestinians, it's hard to see what else the strategy is. On this one, um, the Golan Heights are you know, strategically significant because, as the description, it's the high ground, literally. and You can ski um, on them. Yeah. And in the past, before Israel sees them in 1967, obviously, if, you're, if your military opponent has a high ground that is looking down on you, that has military advantages, you know, particularly with uh, the development of new rocket technology, mm-hmm. Israel feels like it needs the Golan Heights as almost like a buffer between them and and their Arab neighbors to the north. Now, here are the problems. Uh, One, for the U.S. president to nakedly and transparently do some – the Golan Heights have not been in the news. There's no reason to be doing this. There's not some ongoing struggle for the Golan Heights. No one is calling on them to hand over de facto power There's a peacekeeping force there. The the Syrians aren't trying to overrun the Golan Heights. So so this did not need to happen. Trump chose to do this, right? So the first problem with this is making a major (laughs) decision that goes against, but there have been multiple UN resolutions that say that this, uh, under international law, does not belong to Israel. And multiple American administrations. Multiple American administrations have backed that position. So for Trump to change the U.S. position on this territory against multiple U.N. resolutions just on the eve of Bibi visiting Washington for the APAC conference in front of his election plays into the very worst cynicism around the world that – that all of our foreign policy is just rooted in domestic politics. Our po- domestic politics are Israel's, right? That's the first problem. The second problem is all this is going to do, given that this wasn't currently being particularly contested, is once again inflame Arab opinion against Israel and against the United States playing any kind of broker role in these conflicts. And so if Jared has a peace plan in his pocket, <laughs> everybody knows that that would be weighted heavily towards trying to get other Arab states to, uh, in some fashion, recognize Israel or play a constructive role. Well, this just made that much, much more difficult. Frankly, it only plays into the hands of the Assads and Irans of the world who use conflicts like this to bolster their own legitimacy as the people who are sending up to Israel. So it made every it made the regional dynamic worse while not really doing anything. It's not like Israel Get, got something new. They, mm-hmm. You know, they've already had this kind of de facto control. So the second point is, it just it made the regional dynamic worse. Third is, we we have spent four years since Tony was leading this process and situation room, rejecting the Russian annexation of Crimea on the basis of international law, that you can't just kind of come in, win a piece of land in a war and annex it against the wishes of the international community and against international law, against previous UN positions. We just handed Putin a gigantic gift. He he can rightly say, what the hell is the difference between mm-hmm. us annexing Crimea and Israel annexing the Golden, Golan Heights? It's exactly the same thing. Yeah. Um, and so we are now playing the role standing up against in terms of Crimea. And so collectively, this is such a Trump thing to do. It's <laughs> nakedly political. 
It's entirely to serve his domestic political interests. It makes an intractable conflict in the Middle East worse, and it's a gift to Putin. Yeah. I mean, (laughs) Ben said it exactly right. This has nothing to do with security and everything to do with politics. President Trump's politics, Prime Minister Netanyahu's politics. It's as simple as that. And for all the reasons Ben said, it just makes life a heck of a life that's already very complicated, a lot more complicated. One of the ironies is you want to talk about security and Israel's security. One of the things that's actually undermined Israel's security was President Trump unilaterally without any process, without apparently thinking about it, uh, pulling our very modest force out of uh, Syria. Uh, very different than the you know 100,000 troops we had in Iraq or the 100,000 troops we had in Afghanistan. A very small force, a couple of thousand, leveraging tens of thousands of local forces to help keep what was left of uh, ISIL uh, at bay, uh, to help keep the other countries uh, in the region a little bit on their heels and not on their toes, and among other things, uh, to uh, keep Iran from uh, acting out too much against Israel. That he just removed without talking to anyone, including the Israelis. So if I were Netanyahu, instead of praising President Trump in the Oval Office and at this press conference in the rather robust way that he did, <laughs> I'd be saying to him in private, what did you do? You just pulled the rug out from under us in, uh, in Syria. Yeah. But, and this guy's such a fucking moron, Trump, <laughs> that if you watch the press conference with Netanyahu, which unfortunately I had to do, he goes on this long rant about Iran and he goes, because of what we've done you know, with Iran, Iran today, this is a quote from Trump, is a totally different country than it was when I took office. What the fuck is he talking about? It's the exact same country. Like, do you have a map, Tommy? Could you pull it up? I like, do. Like, the last I checked, the, the Iran is the same place. This is good radio. Like, the last yeah. I checked, <laughs> Still here. Uh, uh, Iran it has all the same influence that it's had in Green Syria and in, in Iraq. Iran is actually still complying with the nuclear deal that Trump pulled out of. Like, literally nothing has changed, right? Nope. So it just shows that this is a farce. It's, it's just about politics. It's about being able to stand up next to Netanyahu and say, Iran is totally different. Like, yeah. w- what is the backup for that? And who asks him that question? Like, in the mm-hmm. press, it's like, he just says these things. Excuse me, could you describe how they're a different country? One like, follow-up. Could one, please, I've, I've asked this question before, but could someone in the White House press corps please ask the President of the United States, what is the Iran deal? Could you describe the terms of the Iran deal? He has no idea what's even in this agreement, you know? And, uh, he, and, know, and, know. and so this is all a show, and we're all supposed to treat it like it's on the level. Like, we're supposed to treat it like it's, like, real thought-out foreign policy. Well, can you imagine the process that led to the Golan Heights thing? How many meetings do you think there were of, like, the National Security Council to discuss this? He woke up and he tweeted something because he and Jared and whomever figured out it'd be a good a nice uh, gift, gift for, for BB. You know, here for APAC, we'll give you... Well, you get to come to APAC and get an extra party it's, favor. It's a the great Golan swag Heights, bag. You know, yeah. It's <laughs> swag bag. It's notably on the heels of, of Netanyahu aligning with a party that is so far right and so overtly racist that APAC denounced them, one. Two, you know, it's worth stepping back and remembering that these very overt efforts to interfere in a foreign election often don't work, including when Bill Clinton went to Israel in 1996 to endorse, essentially, Shimon Peres in his race against Bibi Netanyahu, and I believe it backfired. So there's a good lesson there.
Pod Save the World is brought to you by the UN Refugee Agency. The UN Refugee Agency, or UNHCR, responds to emergencies and provides long-term solutions for refugees. They provide aid in over 130 countries, including Ukraine, Syria, Afghanistan, and Sudan, where people are forced to flee from war and persecution at their greatest moment of need. UNHCR helps and protects refugees by providing food, shelter, medical care, and other life-saving essentials. The agency jumpstarts relief in three key ways. They transport core relief items stored in even the most remote areas of the world. They deploy expert emergency staff trained to help in crisis situations, and they transfer funds directly to support the emergency. Because of generous supporters and donors, UNHCR can scale up its response within 72 hours of a large-scale emergency. Your support helps provide life-saving aid for refugees whenever and wherever emergencies occur. Donate to USA for UNHCR by visiting unrefugees.org slash donation. That's unrefugees.org slash donation. Support for Pod Save the World comes from the International Rescue Committee. The IRC works in more than 50 countries, serving people whose lives have been upended by war, conflict, and natural disasters. In places like Gaza, Ukraine, and Sudan, displaced families are experiencing war, extreme hunger, and life-threatening injuries. In Gaza, ongoing violence, bombardment, and blockade have made survival difficult for families living in damaged buildings and tents. The lack of safe water, medicine, and healthy food contributes to the spread of diseases, and children are especially at risk. The International Rescue Committee is working with local partners in Gaza to provide life-saving medical care to injured civilians. The IRC works around the world to help families in crisis by delivering critical supplies such as therapeutic food for malnourished children, clean water, cash assistance, and more. Your donation will support this work and help children and families survive. Listen, the International Rescue Committee is an incredible organization. They are doing the Lord's work all around the globe. I have donated to them, you know, for many, many years now because I know that my dollar will go towards helping people. It's not going to go to administrative costs or overhead fees. It's just an incredible group doing great work. I hope you'll consider them. Donate today by visiting rescue.org slash rebuild. That's rescue.org slash rebuild. This show is sponsored by BetterHelp. We all carry around different stressors, big and small. When we keep them bottled up, it can start to affect us negatively. Therapy is a safe space to get things off your chest and to figure out how to work through whatever's weighing you down. If you're thinking of starting therapy, give BetterHelp a try. It's entirely online. It's designed to be convenient, flexible, and suited to your schedule. Just fill out a brief questionnaire to get matched with a licensed therapist and switch therapists anytime for no additional charge. Listen, if you're listening to Pod Save the World, you need some therapy. If you're watching the events around the world that might freak you out, we've got this election coming down the pike. There's a lot of stuff that people uh, are stressed about, that are anxious about, stuff that makes you lose sleep, and therapy can help. Get it off your chest with BetterHelp. Visit betterhelp.com slash crookedworld. Go today to get 10% off your first month. That's betterhelp, H-E-L-P dot com slash crookedworld. Speaking of Syria, recently the Trump White House announced that ISIS has lost its last bit of territory in Syria. I think we all would agree it's unequivocally a good thing, especially for the people that were living under ISIS rule. I can imagine it was hell on earth. But the reporting feels a little bit like Groundhog Day. The New York Times is quoting an analyst in a story today that said ISIS is more powerful than it was in 2011. The pattern basically is that when ISIS loses territory like they did in Syria, they return to the same guerrilla tactics that they've been using Mm -hmm. for years, including back when we all called them al-Qaeda in Iraq. Tony, how big a deal do you think the territorial defeat is and how far along 
in the process is that territorial defeat in terms of eradicating the threat from ISIS to the U.S., let's say? Look, from where I sit, the territorial defeat is a big deal. It does a number of things. It takes away literally a physical place to bring various folks who would sign up to become foreign fighters in, uh, in ISIL. There's no place to go. It denies the organization resources in the areas that they controlled, including a lot of oil that they once uh, controlled, banks, you name it. And it actually, even more important, goes to their entire narrative of actually building a state, a physical state. That's been taken away from them. So it's a big deal. But here's the thing, Tommy. First, it was pretty galling to see President Trump go out uh, in front of the helicopter. He's taking off the other day. And again, we're, we're, this is great radio, too. Pull out a map and say, here's what's happening now. ISIL is entirely gone and showed what, what, <laughs> what it looks like now in Syria. And then he showed the map of what ISIL looked like and what Syria looked like with ISIL at the very end of the Obama administration. They're two big sort of red blotches on that map. Well, here's the thing. The one area where President Trump has actually continued Obama's policy was in dealing with ISIL. And thank goodness that he did, because the coalition that we put together, the strategy we put in place, the local fighters that we trained and equipped, that's what got us to this point, the territorial defeat of ISIL. And back at the end of the Obama administration, yes, there were two red blotches left on that map, Raqqa and Mosul, that systematically, comprehensively, we had cut off and isolated. And then time ran out on us, and it fell to our successors to finish the job. Mm -hmm. uh, but it's a little bit like, and I hate to even put President Truman and, and President Trump in the same sentence, but it's a little bit like Harry Truman at the end of the Second World War, uh, taking credit for everything that happened under FDR's watch. Right. But to your point, yes, unfortunately, territorial defeat's a big deal, but it's not the end of the story. And we're seeing them revert to more traditional tactics, including in a bunch of different places around the world. Yeah. Uh, and also the danger as foreign fighters who've survived try to go home and maybe reintegrate their countries and do bad deeds there, that's something that demands very intense international cooperation to make sure we're all working together uh, to track them, to trace them, uh, to stop them. The one weird thing about this is, as Tony said, we had this plan in place and it was working and, and the territory had begun to be taken back from ISIS. We'd taken back a bunch of population centers in Iraq and Syria. That ink blot of ISIS territory on the map had been shrinking steadily. The Mosul operation had begun. We actually gave them the whole Raqqa battle plan. Mm. The weird thing that happened is that they delayed that. Um, they said, oh, no, we have to review this. And we thought this was weird. We're on the way out the door. We're like, hey, this is all ready to go. You know, we've got these Syrian forces, Kurds and Arabs ready to go. And they delayed it for a pretty brief period of time. And then they basically just restarted mm. it. The one thing I've always <laughs> wondered, Tommy, is like the person who delayed it, the criminal grifter who delayed it, Mike Flynn, oh God, yeah. is – at that same time, we know, climbed into bed with Tayyip Erdogan in Turkey, who was the one guy who didn't like the plan because he didn't like that the Kurds were central to the plan, right? And we were arming them. And we were arming the Kurds, right? So, you know, among the many scandals that didn't get all the attention that we needed while, you know, we were apparently too focused on Bob Mueller, which we could talk about in a moment if you want, but is why the National Security Advisor of the United States literally slowed down the Raqqa battle plan at the same time that he had business interests with the Turkish government that didn't like that plan. Hmm. Someone should look at that. Well, Ben, um, you'll, re you'll remember this. The very last meeting of the National Security Council, chaired by President Obama, the last week in office, had one decision teed up, and that was whether to go ahead or not and add to the arming we were doing of the Kurdish-led militia in Syria in order for them to be able to take Raqqa. And 
that was what was teed up for the meeting. Hmm. And Susan Rice, the national security advisor at the time said, look, I just got off the phone with Mike Flynn, my successor to be, and he asked that we not make this decision. Mm-hmm. And President Obama said, well, look, I have to respect that. They're coming in. Uh, we'll leave it to them. If the decision were mine, I, we'd go ahead and do it. Yeah. But, you know, we thought this was on the up and up, yeah. that they wanted to review the plan. But as Ben said, <laughs> we later find out <laughs> yeah. that Mr. Flynn has ties with Turkey. He wants to, like, get paid to render, like, yeah, Gulen to, from Pennsylvania. He wants to, to, to kidnap Turkey, a yeah. cleric living in Pennsylvania. He wants to, like, wrap up Enos Cantor in the United States. Like, <laughs> it's a very strange stories. Two more by things. By the way, that's not, uh, I just added the Enos Cantor thing. <laughs> <laughs> you could actually believe anything about these people, so I do need to clarify. I don't think anyone listening knows who Enos Cantor Okay, good, good, good. Yeah, we, got, we got some Nick's. What would James Dolan do on yeah, that? Yeah, 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 yeah. <laughs> Two more things I want to ask you guys about. So, there's been this ongoing struggle in, in Venezuela, as we've talked about a few times on the show. Pompeo told his Russian counterpart recently that the U.S. will not, quote, stand idly by if Russia sends more military personnel to Venezuela to pop up Maduro, who is their guy in Venezuela. This followed reports of at least two Russian planes carrying 100 troops and a whole bunch of heavy things and boxes in down to Venezuela over the weekend. You know, as you guys know, so the Trump administration recognized Juan Guaido as president uh, of Venezuela in January. They spent the last few months trying to get the Venezuelan military to defect from Maduro's side to Guaido's side. They've had a little, very little success. Instead, the military has ratcheted up the use of force against protesters and Guaido supporters. So it's probably also worth noting that Russia has loaned Venezuela billions of dollars in recent years. That all gets paid back in oil. So they have a vested interest in the most literal sense. I guess my question is, when you tell the Russians, if you're Mike Pompeo or the Secretary of State, that we will not stand idly by if the Russians continue to send military officers and support to Venezuela, how do you back that up? Well, someone we worked closely with, former Vice President Biden, used to remind us, big nations can't bluff. Yeah. Uh, So if there's something behind that, we'll see. I don't think that there is. But here's the thing. In fairness, I want to give the administration some credit, standing up for the one democratically elected institution in Venezuela, the National Assembly, led by Mr. Guaido, putting more pressure on Maduro. Those were good things to do. Those were the right things to do. And they also helped bring some other countries in the hemisphere together uh, to do that. But here's the problem. One of the things they've done is they put all their chips on the bet that increasing this pressure would cause the military to flip. Mm -hmm. And Tommy, as you said to date, That hasn't happened. Maduro has done such a good job in literally buying off the senior brass of the military. Cuba has about 1,000 advisors there who are also making sure that if there are any signs of defection, they get nipped in the bud. And now Russia has deployed some some forces uh, there. And all of that makes it really, really hard. So the problem now is we've increased the pressure. We don't have a a lot of uh, other cards to play absent an invasion, which would be uh, a catastrophic mistake. And the military is still there. Now, it's possible that at some point we'll hit the tipping point and they go. But by the way, even if that happens, even if Maduro goes, that's not the end of the story. That's the beginning of the story. This country is so destroyed economically and so divided politically that what follows Maduro will be chaotic and potentially catastrophic unless there is a strong and serious and comprehensive international plan to help put the pieces back together. I've seen no evidence of that coming from the United States. Yeah, and you know, they said it was unacceptable when the chief of staff to Guado got arrested. They said they're not standing idly by. I mean, the the rhetoric they've employed on on Venezuela, you know, is only making them look feckless here. And 
And again, like I've been a bit uncomfortable with this direction for a while. If you really want to solve the problem, you're going to have to get in the room with a bunch of different people, mm. um, including probably the Venezuelan military and the Cubans. And so if they're not going to do that, there's just going to be this brinksmanship. And these, this crowd knows how to do that. Maduro knows how to dig in. He's paid off the military, as Tony said. He's got the Russians giving him a lifeline. He's got the Chinese giving him a lifeline. He's got the Cubans. He plays on the social divisions, the people leaving the country or mm-hmm. the people who already don't like him. So you know, we're just kind of continuing to drive this car over a cliff without like giving it any thought. And like we're, you know, the Russians are more than willing to back odious characters. Like we we learned mm-hmm. that in in Syria with Assad. So I just uh, I really worry about the direction of this is taking. And you know, all the chest thumping rhetoric in the world isn't going to make Nicolas Maduro step down. Yeah. It's, not good. It's not good. Last thing for you guys. So since we've gotten the AG's summary of the Mueller report, there's been some recrimination coming from the left about whether the media completely screwed this up. The most hyperbolic version of it being a, a Rolling Stone article that said, Russiagate is this generation's WMD. It was actually a Rolling Stone reporter. So again, we haven't seen the report, but I guess I'm just trying to understand how you can make that comparison one, given the impact of the Iraq invasion that we're still living with that we just basically spent the last hour talking about. But also, I mean, when you look back at the reporting in the lead up to Iraq, I mean, the New York Times was running stories that said front page headline, USS Hussein intensifies quest for A-bomb parts. The New York Post had a story on September 16, 2002, Saddam aims to give terrorists briefcase bio-bombs, right? Like Ahmed Chalabi, who is an exiled Iraqi politician who was a favorite neocon and a huge source in the run-up to the war, was seen as someone who was giving constant misinformation. And Judy Miller, who was a reporter at the New York Times during that period, said that he provided most of their front-page exclusives on WMB to the paper. So I'm trying to find what, like, where was the media failure to the extent there was one in the Russia reporting, I ask you guys as people that were involved in the Russia hacking intelligence and have been consumers of the information since, because this reporter for Rolling Stone compares the Steele dossier to Ahmed Chalabi's role in the WME screw up. And that to me seems a touch off. <laughs> I, <laughs> I think that, um, first of all, I, I, I've never quite understood the kind of collection of people on the, the left who apologize for Putin because he's basically the most illiberal leader imaginable. Anything that, you know, the values that I think people on the left purport to care about, human rights, free media, LGBT rights, and the man just steamrolls on a regular basis. So there's mm-hmm. this kind of weird, but putting that aside, I, 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 this is, could seem like a mildly annoying thing on Twitter. I think it's actually really dangerous because Let's separate out two questions. There's what Russia did and there's Trump. Nothing about Barr's, you know, Cliff Notes version of the report does anything to diminish in any way, shape or form what Russia did. Right. So if, if Russia is the WMD here. Like, right. It, it, they're, in they're, fact, it confirms they're, that they they're, did inter- they're very present. Mm-hmm. Russia, like make no mistake, in an operation led by Vladimir Putin on down through their intelligence agencies, interfered in our election through the mass dissemination of social media 
aimed at supporting Trump and creating societal divisions in this country that we are dealing with to this day, hacked into some of the most significant political institutions in the country, provided that information to WikiLeaks to be released to help Trump, timed the release of that information to help Trump, sought to make relationships with people in Trump's orbit so as to presumably gain information that could help them more effectively intervene in the election. There is nothing, even if you take this kind of stupid, absurd, overcranked exoneration narrative about Trump, there is nothing that suggests in any way, shape, or form that Russia didn't do those things. Mm -hmm. And that those things should be really worrying to Americans uh, because Russia did them and they're going to do them again and again and again and again. And their objective is a divided, broken America Mm -hmm. that will no longer be an impediment to their ambitions. And so even if you are, unlike me, somehow sympathetic to Russia's ambitions or you think that the West has pushed too far into Russia's orbit or what have you, that doesn't diminish the fact that Russia is seeking to continually use asymmetric means to basically break apart our society and diminish our country. So it's offensive to our intelligence and to everything we care about. And by the way, I should say this, as people who are on the left, I mean, I think of myself as on the left, this is not a good look for us to be somehow apologist for Putin or somehow diminishing what Putin is doing in our election. Putin is weaponizing social justice movements in this country to try to sow division. He's trying to, you know, use, pit the, the Black Lives Matter movement against the NRA. Like, these are things that we know to be true, right? And again, uh, look at what he has done to LGBT rights in Russia. They've tortured gay people in Russia, okay? They've killed gay people in Russia. You care about gay rights? How can you apologize for Vladimir Putin and look in the mirror after you So, like, oh, look, I agree with that, but, like, it's a separate point. Like, the question of is the media. They're saying that this was worse than Iraq WMD. It doesn't seem like there's any evidence of that. But the media, like, so then to take the media side of it, we, <laughs> I'm shocked by what I learned in the Mueller report to date, and I haven't even read the fucking thing, okay? <laughs> I'm not upset. If you had told me when I left the White House, and I thought I was pretty alarmist, that fucking Donald Trump Jr. would be like, yeah, I can't wait to get that dirt on Hillary and had meetings in, in Trump Tower with a bunch of Russians, and that Trump was negotiating to build a Trump Tower in, in Moscow through the fucking election, that would have floored me. And Jared and I, back channel. I only know that because of the combination of these investigations and the media. And right? Let's, and let's read the report. That's yeah. the, yes. Because when I used to do book reports based off of cliff notes instead of actually reading the book, they, they usually weren't as good. So let's see the full thing. But here's the other thing that I think we're missing. And Ben really puts his finger on it. What Putin has been trying to do at the heart of everything is to divide us, to play on our existing divisions, to amplify them, to pour gasoline on them, and to get us going at each other, to delegitimize our institutions, uh, to call into er- to question all of our most fundamental uh, beliefs. And leaving aside the finding of no collusion in the Mueller report, on one level, President Trump is colluding every single day with Vladimir Putin's ambitions, in that every time the president goes after one of our institutions, every time he denigrates the intelligence community, the law enforcement community, Mueller himself and that whole process, or any group you can think of, he is advancing Mr. Putin's narrative. He's actually doing Putin's job for him. Every time he embraces an autocrat and denigrates a Democrat somewhere around the world, he is doing Putin's bidding for him. Now, that may or may not be willful, but it has the effect of actually advancing Russia's objectives to do exactly what Ben described, which was 
divide us, get us to question our institutions, get us to question who we are. Yeah. And to be to take your point about being fair here, like, okay, did some people over predict what would come out of the Mueller report? I'm sure you could find some media that did that, but collectively, I don't, I don't really think so. I, I don't think anybody had there was this kind of mass expectation right. that Trump would be arrested by Bob Mueller or even impeached. Nancy Pelosi went out a few weeks ago and said the impeachment was off the table. Mm. And like, so the media's role, they've been focused on it because it's a big story and yeah. appropriately focused on it. And a big story that yielded many indictments and that revealed a lot about what Russia did and revealed a lot about what Trump did. And even if there's not a criminal conspiracy, if it didn't rise to that level, it doesn't mean it's still not a huge story that Russia did this and that the Trump people were at minimum witting of elements of this and welcoming of it, uh, that alone merits all of this media attention. So to, to compare this to WND, the underlying event is true, the Russian interference. The Trump associates being witting of that and in some ways engaging with that, even if it doesn't rise to the level of criminal conspiracy, that actually exceeded, Tommy, what I ever thought would come out of this investigation. And, and so to compare this to WMD is doing right. a huge disservice. And I do think it's relevant to Putin because Putin wants to be able to say, oh, it's fake news. So I, I think you are playing into Putin's hands. I think that a couple of things. Like one, there were some glaringly wrong reports. Like, did Michael Cohen go to Prague or not? Because McClatchy has just let that story hang for the better part of a year. There were some reports that were probably overheated, like intelligence officials say they're not briefing Trump on the best stuff because they're worried he'll disclose it. Maybe that was true. Maybe it wasn't. We do know that he disclosed highly sensitive information to like the Russian ambassador in the Oval Office. So, But moreover, I do think that it is true that a lot of cable news panels allowed people to make predictions to do punditry that was wrong but, but that doesn't compare but, to like but can we put this in context for yeah. just a second we have in the current commander-in-chief someone who it has been documented has made 8,000 erroneous or misleading statements as president of the united states on average more than 10 a day we have gone from the first president of the united states who could not tell a lie to the current president who cannot tell the truth uh, and so for anyone <laughs> on behalf of President Trump, to go after the credibility of any other person or institution in this country when the president himself is the leading purveyor of fake news, the leading consumer of fake news, yeah. the leading purveyor of conspiracy theories, the leading consumer of conspiracy theories, it doesn't hold up. Yeah. So, we, so let's put this in the right context, too. Uh, I agree. But even like, let's say Trump wasn't president. Let's say it was a, a robot that could only say the, the truth. I mean, comparing some pundit on MSNBC predicting Trump would get locked up or his kids would go to jail to Judy Miller writing a front page story about uh, Iraqi efforts to get aluminum tubes that could be only used to create nuclear weapons when, in fact, there were experts sitting in the intelligence agencies who said, no, those are probably just traditional rocket components. Or, you know, to go to one person, Chalabi, over and over again as your source for WMU-related stories, knowing that he was completely self-interested in this process and wanted to rule Iraq later on. Like, that is a failure that allowed the White House to launder erroneous or half-assed intelligence through the mainstream media and make a case for war that led to, like, a decade of a disaster. I guess the, the reason I have such a visceral reaction to it, though, too, is it, okay, yeah, the Michael Cohen meeting, say that never happened, like like you said, the first point here is that 
What was the consequence of that McClatchy? Yeah, there's no consequence. It's an after the consequence is McClatchy looks stupid, and, and nobody's right. been able to prove it. And right. and so if your point is, oh, ha, once again the mainstream media reported some things were wrong because they were too invested in a certain narrative. Okay, I can engage with that, but the point is that in the scale of what's happening in our country, and in the information space, as Tommy says, as, as Tony says, of our country, that McClatchy report is is not the most concerning no. thing here God, we're, no. we're dealing in in a situation here where the scale of what is at stake between the trump putin and th- again this is why i do kind of have a reaction about why are we doing this on the left like trump putin bb erdogan the far right parties in europe brexit like we've got enough coming at us here you know this is like the existential challenge of our generation as to whether this wave of authoritarian strongman, post-truth, us versus them politics is going to wash over us and wash away everything that we care about. And if you can somehow step back and look at that and think that the Iraq scale problem is some fucking cable news panels and some overcranked predictions about the Mueller report. It's just such a misread of what the actual moment is that we're living through and what the scale of the post-truth politics is that is numbing us every single day. If you can somehow look at that and still think that the biggest problem in American politics the last two years is some over-torqued Mueller coverage, like I just don't – I don't get why that's – yeah. What is the point of that? Especially uh, when you make that assertion without having, you know, read the Mueller report. <laughs> yes, um, which I would like to read. But uh, me too. But that's all we have the time for today. Tony, thank you so much for being here. Great to be with uh, you guys. Is, we think you should move to California. It's not a hard sell. Okay, yeah. deal. Yeah. Well, well, there's a new and there's a new Blinken. I wasn't sure if I was allowed pl- to mention you're it. Plug John, John Rowley Blinken, one yeah. month old today, born in Encinitas, California. Unbelievable. Huh. Congratulations. And thank you all over for agreeing to do this because... Uh, you know, I'm sure you got a lot of shit going on. Literally. <laughs> All right. How are we going? When we're back, Joe and Yasmin tell me why they hate nuclear weapons. They say plants like music. Yeah, no, like really, they, they respond to the vibrations of it, which means that this playlist you're listening to, the plants are too. You know what else plants like? Organic soil from miracle Grow. It's made with all the best stuff like wood fiber and compost. Plus, it's OMRI certified organic, which officially means it's made with superior ingredients. And when you give your plants the stuff that makes them happy, they won't judge you on your iffy playlist. Hear that, plants? So go ahead and give them miracle Grow. I live by routines, but I especially love my same-day delivery routine with Shipped. And my shopper knows this about me. When Sunday rolls around and I place my weekly stock-up order, Joe sends texts from the aisles. Wilted lettuce? Nuh-uh. Hard pass. Deal on my favorite sparkling water? Whew. Grab two. Fresh flowers just because? Hmm. Sounds like a delightful idea. If you love routines that work for you, get Shipped same-day delivery. Shipped. Delight in every delivery. Learn more at Shipped.com slash high. The living room is where you make life's most beautiful memories. But your sofa shouldn't be the one remembering them. The new life-resistant, high-performance furniture collection from Ashley is designed to withstand all the spills, slip-ups, and muddy paws that come with the best parts of life. Ashley high-performance sofas and recliners are soft, on-trend, and easy to clean. Shop the high-performance furniture in-store or online at ashley.com. Ashley, for the love of home. 
I am thrilled to have in the studio in Los Angeles two people who hate nuclear weapons more than almost anyone else on the planet. Joe Serencioni is the president of the Plowshares Fund. I wanted to say the owner of the fund like it was some investment group. And Yasmin Silva... I, I think of it that way myself sometimes. <laughs> yeah, you're investing and not dying. Uh, Yasmin Silva is a partnership manager at Beyond the Bomb. Thank you both so much for being here. Our pleasure. Yeah, thanks um, for having us. So you guys had a great event here oh, what uh, an event. in Los Angeles. Ben uh, Rhodes is awesome. Ben Rhodes right was there. Right off the bat. So He's you, awesome. Then you had some, you know, some glitz, some glamour, some celebrities. Tell Michael me about Douglas, it. longtime board member cool. and uh, big supporter of uh, and hater of nuclear weapons. Right. And Representative Lou of great, LA. Great, great. He was know. fabulous. Yes. Such honesty. I mean, it's so refreshing to see people just, you know, speaking the truth and saying it out in words you can understand. To say the least. And then we had Kenneth Benedict, the cool. former publisher of the Bulletin Atomic Scientists, another board member and a nuclear weapons expert. She great. was great. And a big believer in democracy and bringing democracy back to our nuclear weapons discussion. Who makes these decisions? Who decides? Good question. Lots of questions we're going to get into. We um, do. <laughs> so, okay, what are the goals, Yasmin, of Beyond the Bomb? What are you guys working on? It's a great and really broad question. Good. Um, so I think at the end of the day, we are working to eliminate nuclear weapons worldwide, right? But mm -hmm. we're a little ways off from that. Sure. So we've got some intermediate steps. So right now we are working on preventing nuclear war um, and decreasing nuclear tensions. But... Beyond that, we at Beyond the Bomb really like to focus on the fact that the nuclear system is impacting folks here in the United States day to day. Um, it's not just about this abstract idea of nuclear war. It's hmm. the downwinders. It's the Native Americans whose lands were seized and are still suffering the effects of radiation. It's the Marshall Islanders who don't have an oncologist on the island. Wow. And so we really, while looking to prevent nuclear war um, and raise the profile of this issue, don't want to forget about the people who have already been impacted. That's really mm -hmm. important. So for those listening uh, who may not follow this as closely as we do, the arms control trajectory in the United States doesn't feel great right now. Trump's national security advisor, John Bolton, awful mustache guy, he hates arms control agreements with a fiery passion. As much as you guys hate nukes, he hates arms control. A serial killer of arms control agreements. Indeed. And he will kill again. And while we just uh, we either intend to withdraw or are about to withdraw from the INF Treaty, depending on when you're hearing this, there's also work being done to keep us from extending the New START Treaty, which limited the number of U.S. and Russian deployed nuclear warheads, like very important pieces of diplomacy that were bipartisan, right? mm -hmm. Reagan, Absolutely. Obama, yep. right? They worked on these. So how do we get back to a place where both parties agree on trying to lessen the number of nuclear weapons in the world? Well, I think for one thing, something that changed from when these treaties were negotiated to today is, as I mentioned, this issue's kind of fallen off the map a little bit. Mm -hmm. People my age didn't have duck and cover drills. Yeah. Um, we, we didn't really understand the impact. And so it hasn't been in the public eye the same way that it was with people calling um, for these treaties. And so something that Beyond the Bomb is working on doing is creating a grassroots presence, creating, educating citizens on the fact that, A, these treaties exist, B, us pulling out of them is kind of scary and dangerous mm -hmm. for everyone involved, and um, giving folks ways to plug in. I'd say it's people that matter more than, more than the politicians, more than the think tanks. It's people that matter. That's where the anti-nuclear movement began. Mm -hmm. In the 1980s, there were 70,000 nuclear weapons in the world, most held by the United States and the Soviet Union, and they scared the bejesus out of people. Yeah. The biggest demonstration uh, until recently in the United States was a million people in Central Park in 1982. The reason we have the INF Treaty is because there were millions of people demonstrating in the streets of Europe to stop a nuclear war in Europe, and that matters. And that set in motion Ronald Reagan, 
who was the greatest arms control president in history, negotiating one agreement after another just to reduce these. Mm -hmm. And we had this process where we went from 70,000 down to 14,000 today. Still Mm -hmm. enough nuclear weapons to destroy human civilization many times over, but great progress until now. Trump has stopped the process. So we got to get that public pressure back. There's not going to be a big anti-nuclear movement again, but we don't need that because we have these other mass movements, millions of people in motion on climate change, on human rights, on civil mm-hmm. rights, against the Muslim ban. On, you know, for exa- So what we have to do is have them see this nuclear issue as intimately connected to these other issues that they already care about. Which it is, to be honest. Tell I, me more about that. Yeah. So the way that I found nuclear weapons and actually became kind of entrenched in this issue is is sort of through that. So my top line issue is eliminating gender-based violence. And when I initially started doing research on nuclear weapons, I realized that the history um, and the way we still talk about nuclear weapons is extremely Mm. gendered, Mm. extremely violent, extremely patriarchal. And so in that way, when when you're looking at eliminating nuclear weapons and taking them off the table as a nuclear war should never be fought and can never be won, um, we're really looking at a a paradigm shift of how we view violence and posturing, Mm. right? That's on one level. On Mm. another level, I was talking before about um, the mining of nuclear materials that went into the creation of these. Decimated land, displaced people, health. We're talking about health care for all, right? And right now, folks who are suffering the effects of radiation poisoning from the testing the United States did still aren't getting... Um, the help that they need. And right. so this issue intimately touches on a And then there's the money. Right. Yes. If, you, if you believe in Medicare <laughs> for all... Nukes you are wanna, cheap, right? <laughs> <laughs> we are committed, the United States, every person in the United States is now committed to spending $2 trillion over the next 25 years for an entirely new generation of subs and bombers and missiles. And for what? Seems for dumb. what? Barack Obama was the, responsible for a lot of that investment, right? I mean, I think that yeah, was the... Ben? Is he well, here? He's got to answer for this. That was, I, I mean, I believe that was part of the deal we made to get the New START Treaty through the Congress required this massive 30-year investment into nuclear infrastructure. But when you step back and think about it, it seems uh, not like the greatest use of money to me. They never thought they were going to have to pay for all this. So yes, you got to modernize what you got, but it was always going to be coupled with another arms control treaty. It was going to slash Mm -hmm. the arsenals. Well, guess what? The money's pouring in. The weapons are proceeding. The arms control has been killed. So that means you don't have the money to pay for things like the Green New Deal. That's exactly what I was going to bring up is the Green New Deal is is here to change that paradigm, right? It's Mm -hmm. to put communities, people in the environment first? And, and what does it say when we as a country are investing in weapons of mass destruction that will kill millions of people instead of in things that will better the lives of us here at home? Yeah. So you, you talked about the downstream effects of nuclear weapons. There's obviously the intended effect of a nuclear weapon, which is to uh, annihilate a city and everyone in it. But then there is the fact that you would think that a nuclear weapon is like the most well-kept secret or well-handled piece of hardware, but that's actually not true. So for those listening, the Pentagon calls a serious nuclear weapon-related problem a broken arrow. And I believe they cop to having had 33 broken arrows, which means one gets out in a way that is unsafe to the population. So here's a couple examples. In the 60s, I believe, a worker in Arkansas dropped a wrench or something into a missile silo. It blew the thing open, so there was a fuel leak, which is below the biggest nuclear warhead in existence at the time. Eight Seems like megatons. a problem. That's, yeah, bad idea. Uh, in 1961, a B-52 broke up in midair over North Carolina, dropping two nuclear bombs onto the ground. They didn't blow up somehow, thank God. By the way, B-52s are still the primary plane that 
delivers a nuclear payload, and I don't believe one has been built since JFK was president, so that seems dumb. The launch centers work on floppy 8-inch disks. Uh-huh. Does this all seem like uh, good practices to you? You guys are experts in the field. Does this worry you at all, these broken arrows? <laughs> uh, absolutely. People do not appreciate how close we've come to annihilating ourselves, not somebody else attacking us, doing it to ourselves, whether by, as Kennedy said, miscalculation, accident, or madness, and including these kinds of accidents where we almost bombed North Carolina. <laughs> I thought you were saying North Korea for a second. No, no <laughs> North, North Carolina. You heard that right. So I guess another issue, I mean, I know you guys have talked about this. People probably don't realize how few checks there are on a president who wants to use nuclear weapons. Uh, that is true for Trump. That was true for Obama. It's true for all of them. Congressman Ted Lieu and Senator Ed Markey have a bill that would prevent the president from launching a nuclear first strike without congressional approval. Do you think that's a good idea? And do you think have a sense of how that might work? Or what, if you want to talk through the process for how a launch would occur? You should have heard Ted Lieu last night. He was great. He's a former military uh, JAG officer, right, right. a lawyer. And he said he was he and Ed, Ed Markey were looking at the command and control, the order of how this actually would proceed. And he said they both said this is unconstitutional. Hmm. The Congress and the Congress alone has the authority to declare war. I would say launching a nuclear missile is an act of war. And good so point. they and they want to be restore that. So before the president can order a first strike, right. not if we're under attack, everybody right. agrees you've got the right to retaliate. But out of the blue, if Donald Trump is having a bad golf day and he wants to order a nuclear weapon, maybe the Congress should have a say in this. And that's all their bill does. Yeah. Do you agree? Yeah. So I think president... <laughs> Who could not agree? Golf can be trying. <laughs> Come on, that was good. <laughs> tweets, tweets can be jarring. Golf can be trying. Indeed. Um, your coffee could be a little bitter. Yeah, yeah. Um, but... Yeah, I think that changing the nuclear status quo is so important, and presidential sole authority is just one of the keys to that. We need to democratize this system more, but there are other bills on the table that would enhance, such as no first use, um, saying that it would be the policy of the United States to not use a nuclear weapon first. And the kind of message that I think that that sends that could bring us... So we're talking about treaties, right, and Mm -hmm. how we're having problems negotiating for multiple reasons, but in good faith saying the United States is the only country that has used a nuclear weapon first and offensively to come out with a no first use policy. I think that that can really set us back on the track to renegotiating these treaties, both in good faith and with better outcomes for the American people and national security than they yeah, did before. And to minimizing the role of nuclear weapons and our strategy yeah. and other people's strategy. I mean, if the most powerful military country the world has ever known says, you know, we might have to use a nuclear weapon first, well, why doesn't everybody? Yeah. You know, why doesn't China f- feel that way? Or Brazil, a country the president of the United States wants to make a NATO ally, apparently. Yeah. <laughs> why, does, why doesn't every country decide, you know, we should have a few nukes? So we, or as the, the most powerful yeah. country, have a responsibility of minimizing their value, of making them f- as far away from the, the table as you can possibly get them. Well, so I totally agree and actually got the chance to speak with a Senator Elizabeth Warren about this when she was here sitting in that chair. Ah. Uh, Yasmin. So she... Uh, you know, no surprise since she's ahead of everyone on every policy area, came out first with a uh, no first use nuclear policy that essentially well, it doesn't essentially, it codifies into law that the U.S. would never initiate a nuclear war. Again, I, mean, I mentioned this with her, but we considered using nuclear weapons in Korea. I believe the president was counseled uh, about the potential use of nuclear weapons in Vietnam. So this is not a, right. a distant issue. It's something we still think about despite seeing firsthand the horrors in World War II. So, I mean, do you think other candidates will get to where Warren is? Does it make you hopeful that she's out leading on this? 
Yeah, it does. Um, and I think that they will because conversations that we're having with folks all across the country know first use overwhelmingly. People think we already have it. Yeah, yeah they, they think it's our policy already. Yeah, they already think it's our policy. Um, and so I think it's it's less of a question of will they, but when they. And it's something Beyond the Bomb is doing is to educate people, be like, hey, you think this is already on the books? It's actually not. Why don't we get out and talk to your candidates and, and you, find out where they you stand? You were telling me about this poll of New Hampshire voters? Yeah, um, a poll just came out of folks in New Hampshire um, and... I think over 50% of people want a no first use policy. Almost 20% um, don't want us to use nukes ever. Hmm. And so it's the majority of people who already feel this way. It's it's really a question of how can they plug in and how can we connect them with candidates to make sure that they know how constituents feel. This is not going to be one of the top issues in the presidential campaign. There's a lot of other issues, Mm -hmm. but it's going to be there, particularly because of the nature of the president we have. And and this is why Elizabeth Warren, I think, is is so out front on this. She's on the Senate Armed Services Committee. She deals with these issues. And she saw what Adam Smith did, the chairman of the House Armed Services Committee. He has introduced this no first use bill. He has articulated his priorities. And he's the guy who's going to mark up the Department of Defense spending bill. And he uh. has three principles, no new weapons, more arms control, not less, and no first use. And guess what? That's what Elizabeth Warren is articulating as well. We think as these candidates, most of whom don't have national security records, mm-hmm. as they come out on the campaign trail, I think you'll see them speaking up more and more. And I'm delighted that Beyond the Bomb is going to be on the rope lines and in the town halls, along with other groups, encouraging them to do so. Well, so that was my final question for you guys. Is You, know, you think that the threat of nuclear annihilation would sort of sell itself <laughs> as an important mm-hmm. issue. But you don't always hear. You know, I worked on a bunch of presidential campaigns. Actually, to their credit, a lot of activists in Iowa uh, would show up at events and ask about this issue. They tend to be incredibly well-informed. That's but, just what Ben said. In, in our, that's really? right. He, they came to Iowa, and they, and they heard it from the the meetings that they were having, the, yeah. the voters were demanding that they do this. So, I mean, that the fact that Ben still remembers that is a reminder is that you, you just can't underestimate how big the impact is of showing up to an event and mm. asking a candidate face-to-face about these issues. So, like, what kind of stuff are you guys planning to do in this its primary and election cycle to get people, to, the candidates in particular, to focus? Definitely. So we did this in the midterm to get candidates on the record um, on their congressional races, and we're going to be doing the same thing. I think the first thing, at least with Beyond the Bomb, is is letting folks know about these events. Um, it's hard for an everyday person to keep track of where the candidates are yeah. going to be on any given day. And so Beyond the Bomb and working with our partners to make sure that folks are aware of when and where the candidates are showing up. But it's not just showing up, right? Not every one can, especially if it's if you have to care for a kid or after school programs, et cetera. Like it's also calling the campaign. It's emailing the campaign. Um, there are so many ways for folks to get involved. And I think you talked about how nuclear annihilation should be a selling point in its, of itself. Mm-hmm. But sometimes it can be a little stifling. Yeah. The idea that we're we're up against this big mushroom cloud, right? And I think for me, um, what got me involved was taking that first step and and taking that first action which was a call hmm. um, and being like, well, that wasn't very scary. Right. <laughs> yeah. Right. I can do or, that. <laughs> or it could even be something as simple as signing a petition. Or signing a petition. So and Plowshares Fund is about to launch a petition to get people to uh, encourage the candidates to adopt a no first use pledge. That's and great. We're hoping to do it with Credo and uh, a few other groups so we get a million, half a million signatures and then present it to the candidates. So that kind of thing can have a real impact. That's great. Last question for you. I lied earlier. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> non-proliferation, salt, 
start? Like, why do all the nuclear nerds talk in these acronyms and these terms that are meaningless? How do we get our our scientist friends, our Gary Seymours and all these people to uh, adopt the language you guys are using today? It's because progressives are afraid of their own convictions. Hmm. And increasingly, you find that progressive Democrats in particular want to talk to the center right. And they want to orient their conversation that way to impress them that, no, they're pro-military, they're strong, they're not going to be weak, they can talk the talk baloney. Yeah, you can, we know that. Be confident. Be strong about your own convictions and talk to the American people that we'd, we want to stop nuclear Armageddon. We want to stop the spread of nuclear weapons. We want to save some money. We want to have a safe, secure future for our children and grandchildren. And you can't do that with the nuclear weapons hanging over your head, especially when one man has the ability to destroy the world in 30 minutes. What I would say is I came to the nuclear movement, no background in it. Mm -hmm. I just cared and I knew that as an organizer, I had the ability to, to educate folks and get folks on board, right? So something that I do and still did and do is I just ask and when people realize mm. that this jargon they're using i'm like i'm sorry i don't know what that means yeah, yeah. and then they have to stop and be like oh and explain it and i think that not being afraid to, so it's i'm not saying the onus is on folks who don't understand i think that we we need to have a conversation about how we can change those terms but it's also not being afraid to not know because yes. this whole system has been designed in a back room That's to right. keep it out of the hands of the american public and so we need to ask and we don't need to be curious your pretty little head will take care of all <laughs> yeah, this. Exactly. yeah yeah exactly that, that's the kind of rhetoric in the past that's and right. so not being afraid to question that is yeah. such a good point can i just uh, tell you a little story like my in 2009 i got in, hired in the White House to work on national security issues on the press team. And one of the first things we did was a big speech at Camp Lejeune down in North Carolina. And I remember kind of getting pulled aside by the Pentagon spokesman at the time. And he brought me to this area. And we ended up sitting down with Secretary Gates and his mill aide. Uh -huh. And they were just be, they were being nice to me. They were trying to introduce me. And, like, and so he said to me, uh, Bob Gates said, how do you like the job? And the smartest thing I could muster out of my little brain was a lot of acronyms, sir. <laughs> and he laughed. And he said, you know, I don't know what those acronyms mean either. But I, he was like, I got the goddamn job where I can ask. And then see if they do too. It's like, okay, if, if Bob Gates doesn't know That's what right. half the Pentagon yeah. is talking about, it's okay if yeah. I don't know and ask. So anyway. Well, I just want to say thank you to both of you for the work you're doing. Thanks for sitting down with me. This is so important. I hope people will go to events, talk to candidates. Tell them not to nuke anybody <laughs> because it's kind of crazy that we're Either still talking Either North Korea or North Carolina. Thank you. Yes. Yeah. Neither. <laughs> Thank right. you. Thank you. Thank you, Tommy. All right. We're back with Worldos Want to Know. The question today is from Kate, who sends this in from Twitter. How can individuals help hold massive social media platforms to account over the hateful extremist content that is spread through their sites? I'm a New Zealander, and I'm so freaking angry over the way Facebook and Twitter responded to the Christchurch terrorist attack. Kate, this is just an unbelievably important question. I'm very glad you asked it because the architects of the internet uh, from Twitter to further back created a place and a bunch of platforms that I think are very libertarian in nature and that prioritized uh, free speech and freedom of expression over all other needs. And I understand why they did that, because historically, the greatest threat 
to our freedom is from the state clamping down on us, uh, limiting what we can do and what we can say. But I think as we've seen social media platforms grow and evolve over time, they've become places where extremist content can live. Early on, it was a conversation about ISIS and their propaganda that was spreading online and radicalizing people. Uh, you've seen all kinds of other really objectionable content from you know pornography to other things that had that can be managed and taken down and kept off platforms by these companies. But they've done a terrible job dealing with extremist white nationalist, white supremacist content in a lot of the platforms. And I think we need to hold them to a better standard and say, you can't be agnostic. Uh, you cannot be okay with content on your site that could radicalize people and lead them to a place, lull them into thinking that being virulently racist is okay, because the next step might be violence. So I think there's a couple things we can do. One, these companies listen when they get bad headlines or when their bottom line is hurt. So I think we need to raise our objections loud and clear, constantly let them know, hold demonstrations, uh, whatever it takes to get media attention so they know that we are watching them, whether you're in New Zealand or the United States, and we want them to do a better job proactively managing objectionable content. Because I don't need to tell you that that New Zealand shooter's video, uh, he was able to post his press release on 8chan. Uh, he was able to post links to where you could live stream his horrific, murderous rampage. And then I think Facebook had to take it down 1.5 million times. So, I mean, clearly not enough is done to prevent this stuff from getting online in the first place. Second, there's a great organization called Sleeping Giants that lets advertisers know when they are running ads on right-wing sites. I think those sorts of efforts are important because it should not be profitable to post racist extremist content on YouTube or Facebook or pick your site. That's just not how this should work. I think we need to keep the pressure on social media platforms to ensure that their algorithms aren't actually pushing people towards more extreme content. That's true on YouTube. It's true on Instagram. You know, these things can often lead you down a very dark rabbit hole from, you know, mildly objectionable posts to really vile stuff uh, that can lead people to take dangerous actions. And then lastly, I mean, I think governments need to play an important role in this. And that's going to take time. Uh, but I do think if people reach out to their congressmen, their senators, to your representatives in New Zealand and let them know that we need better, smarter regulations, we can push them to act. There's nothing more incentivizing than the threat of losing an election. But we need members of Congress here in the U.S. that actually know what they're talking about because it's embarrassing when someone like Mark Zuckerberg goes before a committee and it is clear that no one asking him questions really knows anything about the internet. So those are a few ways. It's an incredibly important question. I talked about it last week with Charlie Wartzel, who's a brilliant uh, writer from the New York Times who follows these issues very closely. And also, I think we need to have a, a more sophisticated conversation about what free speech means, because I'm not trying to limit anyone's speech in any way. I don't think the government should abridge speech. But if you're Twitter or YouTube or Facebook, for example, you can make decisions that aren't quite that absolutist. And you can decide if someone like Alex Jones, who runs InfoWars, can post content on your site where he says Sandy Hook was a hoax. And some of the comments in reporting, quote unquote, that he does leads his followers to harass Sandy Hook families. Like the parents of victims who were murdered are getting harassed by these people who think that they invented the story. I mean, that is totally unacceptable. 
No one thinks free speech should lead to those outcomes. And we have to be smarter and more sophisticated about it. So in conclusion, you know, make your voice heard. If you think that these tech platforms aren't doing enough to police extremist hate speech, call the media, hold events, let people know, let the companies themselves know they respond to headlines, talk to lawmakers and ask them to make better, smarter laws that protect people like you and check out organizations like Sleeping Giants that are trying to prevent people from making money off hateful extremist content, because I think ultimately removing profit from the equation here is likely to get these companies to listen. That's it for Pod Save the World. Thank you guys for tuning in. I appreciate it. And I'll talk to you next week. Here you are. BPMs high, sweat dripping, body moving, tongue panting. You're working hard, real hard, and you're thirsty. You need vitamins, nutrients for peak performance and energy. And your plants do too. Aw. I mean, just look at the little guy. Water-soluble plant food from miracle Grow is full of essential nutrients. Just a little scoop into your watering can and boom, instant feeding and bigger, more beautiful plants. It's kind of like a sports drink for your plants. You may have to suffer from heat, but your plants do not. The living room is where you make life's most beautiful memories. But your sofa shouldn't be the one remembering them. The new life-resistant, high-performance furniture collection from Ashley is designed to withstand all the spills, slip-ups, and muddy paws that come with the best parts of life. Ashley high-performance sofas and recliners are soft, on-trend, and easy to clean. Shop the high-performance furniture in-store or online at ashley.com. Ashley, for the love of home.